Well, we are continuing in our series on the book of Jonah, and Pastor Ash brilliantly last week showed us how God can bring severe mercy into our lives in order to pull us back from the brink of destruction, pull us back from the consequences of our own, own decisions. Sometimes He can bring a whale into our lives to swallow us and therefore save us the severe mercy of God. And this week we're picking up the story after the whale, after Jonah is vomited up on the beach, we continue the story. And if you don't know any of the story, it's very simple. There's a prophet called Jonah in the Old Testament, and he was told to go preach to a city called Nineveh. Jonah didn't like Nineveh, so he said no, and ran the other way. And God intervened, tried to get him back, eventually got him in a whale, eventually vomited him back up again. And we'll see what Jonah does next. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Jonah chapter 3. And let's continue this incredible story. Beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, "'Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home?' that it is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, just take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Going back to verse 1, it says, For the second time, go to Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah is spewed out of the whale, and hopefully this time he decides to obey. For the second time, he's told to go to Nineveh and give the message to it from God. And what is that message? Well, we have to go back to chapter 1 for that message, because in chapter 1, the original 
order, command from God was this. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. I don't know about you, but when I read things like this, I kind of struggle a bit and go, oh, here we go again. God, the angry judge, you know, preach against it. That's so unloving. Preach against it. And later on, the king says, God has fierce anger toward me. And have you ever been reading the Bible or hearing things like this and going, man, I'm not too sure I'm on board with this God of anger and judgment. It seems cruel, so unsympathetic, so harsh. God is just that guy who condemns people with a bad temper. So critical. I mean, we live in a culture, right, where it's, we rightly go, oh, stop judging everyone all the time. You know, we're on social media and we see people criticizing each other and judging each other. And it's like, man, this world would be a better place if we just loved and stopped criticizing. Just tired of this judginess. And we can look at God that way and go, oh, God, stop already. You know? It's just like you're part of the problem of this kind of anger in the world. We can feel that way, right, about God. We can even feel that way about church. It's like, oh, all this judgment. I remember, you know my story. Uh, you know, I, in my 20s, kind of did some stupid things. I own it. I did stupid things and left the church and just thought I'd live a life without God and without, certainly without the church for a few years. And then God started to bring me back to Him, but I was really nervous about coming back to church. Because there's one thing, it's like, I'm okay, I'm starting to get okay with God, but the church, oh, yeah, I'm going to get judged, I'm going to get shamed, I'm going to get condemned. And so I was so nervous. And if you're here today and you're really nervous, you're probably at the back somewhere or thinking, mm, I get it, I totally get it. Because it's like, oh, you're so afraid of being criticized and shamed and judged by the church. And so my journey was, I thought, right, I'll go back to church, but I'm going to pick a church where it's going to be easy to go. And I thought, well, I know that church. It was next door to my work. It was called St. Bart's. And I knew that the poor pastor would preach every Sunday and no one would show up. So I thought, brilliant. That's a safe place for me. So I went to that church. No one was there. I sat in the back row and I thought, great. No one can judge or criticize me because no one's here. The best church ever. But then slowly but surely, I thought, a friend of mine invited me to a different church and I went along, and I went originally by myself, and I walked in, and I was so petrified about people judging me or finding out what I'd done in the past or, you know, oh, my word, I can't believe you're in church and this kind of stuff. And so I remember walking in, and this really smiley, happy greeter, you know the annoying, really smiley greeters when you're struggling and going to church, and they said, hey, I'm Joe, what's your name? And I panicked. I thought, no, I'm going to get found out. can't say who I am. So I completely made up a new name, and I said, hi, uh, I'm John, uh, and walked straight in. For about three weeks, all these people kept referring to me as John, and I thought, no, 
And then eventually they started to get, me, get to know me a bit too well, so I left. I moved on, went to a new church because I was so afraid of being judged and criticized. We just need more love, right? We just need more compassion and empathy. So what do we do with these passages where we see that God is angry and God's going to bring judgment? We try and go, you know what, that's maybe just the Old Testament God, but Jesus is different. Jesus is all loving. But we don't get off that lightly because the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, he says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Jesus. You go, ooh, that sounds like really harsh. And so we go, well, that's Paul. You know, that's not Jesus. Maybe Paul got it wrong. Um, let's, and I just follow the Gospels. And then, but we don't get off so lightly because Jesus himself says in John chapter 9, he says, for judgment I have come into the world. It's like, oh, Jesus, no. It's for love you came into the world. And you see, we get into this place where we, d- we can't bring together God as love and God as judge. Loving and judging don't seem to be compatible. And we choose then. Either God is loving or he's a judge. And we all kind of go, I'm going to choose the loving one. And we'll even sing songs. And it's not the song's fault because this song quotes a bit of scripture when the song says, his mercy triumphs over justice. And we can have a different debate about what that really means, but we want it to mean God brings his mercy and forgets about justice. Like, God looked at justice and judgment and went, yeah, no, let's not do that. I'm about love. Because we don't know how to bring them together. We don't know how to see how God can be both loving and a judge. And so we have the book of Jonah. And whether it is viewed by you as an historical account of the prophet Jonah, or a narrative parable. There's arguments for both. The message is the same. For through it we see how God can be love and bring judgment. How he can bring loving judgment. The first thing we see is we want God to be a God of judgment. We really want him to. You see, look at the context here. God says to Jonah, go, Jonah, to Nineveh and preach against it. Now, let's dig into a bit what that means. See, Nineveh was the capital city of an empire called Assyria, the largest empire known in the known world at that time. And it was brilliantly brutal. It would invade and conquer all of its neighbors with brilliant strategic military prowess. But it was also one of the most torturous and brutal of all empires. We know that. Go to the museums around the world and you'll see artifacts from the Assyrian Empire with mosaics showing how they carried out their warfare and showing how brutal they were. It wasn't enough just to invade a foreign land and take over, but they would capture people and skin them alive. That they would, while they're still living and writhing in pain, they would skewer them and put them on sticks around the city to show that they had won. 
This was a brutal, evil empire. This hadn't just happened to any of the neighbors. It had happened to Israel. And so when you're a prophet or when you're the Jewish community and you hear these words from God saying to Jonah, go and preach against it, your reaction is not, oh God, how judgy. Your reaction is, finally, finally, someone cares about this injustice. Finally, God is going to intervene. You see, the world is messed up. And when God wants to bring his justice, he's not being a monster, but he's confronting the monsters in the world. We want God to be a judge. We want him to bring the end to the evils that we see around us. We want him to step in. Hasn't the last two and a half years shown a collective consciousness in a positive way against the evils in our world? For whatever your political ideology is, all of us stand against oppression. All of us stand against the evils that we see in our society. As we prayed, we stand against the abuse of minors and sex trafficking all around the Super Bowl fanfare. We stand against these things. We want God to intervene. We want a God of justice who says, I can't stand it either. And I'm going to come against it. You see, what's the alternative? If we want a God of love without judgment, we're kind of saying we want a God of love who just looks at the injustices, the evil in the world, the Assyrian empires and today's equivalent, and we want a God just to say, oh, bless people. (laughs) You know, they're trying their best. You know what? I'll, I'll just hug them, and hopefully they get better. You know what? They just need a good hug. Do you see what we're saying in it's not loving to overlook evil. In fact, it's the most loving thing to do is to come against it. Tim Mackey, who is the Genius behind the Bible Project, I, as you've heard me before, I encourage you all to love and befriend the Bible Project online. But he said this, he said, the opposite of judgment is not love, it's apathy. For God to love the people made in his image, to protect the goodness and the beauty of this world, if he does not render judgment, I would argue that he's not caring and he's not loving. He's apathetic, and a God who's apathetic is not worthy of worship, in my opinion. And so love and judgment aren't opposites of each other, but they are two sides of the same coin. They're in harmony with one another. We want a God of judgment. We want someone to intervene into the evils in this world. We want a God of judgment. The problem is, like Jonah, we don't want a God of judgment. We want a God of judgment for them, but we don't want a God of judgment for me. 
You know, we see this in Jonah chapter 3, right? Jonah, it says, obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh, and he preached against it, and he did the worst sermon ever, five Hebrew words, going around the city, preaching. I don't think the full message of God is like, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What does that mean? It's like, what happens in 40 days? Who's going to overthrow us? Who are you? Where are you from? Is it God? What is this? What's going on? And the... The reality is we know what's going on because Jonah is obeying God, but obeying God out of duty, not conviction, right? Imagine him going around the city. Literally, he's going around the city preaching like a teenager being told to tidy their room, right? So whatever, you know, (laughs) hiding stuff under the bed, throwing the covers over all the mess on, you know, and it's like, yeah, whatever, 40 more days and you'll be overthrown. He's just doing it reluctantly. God doesn't care. He overrules and he brings repentance. They, they repent. They say sorry. They turn around. And then that makes Jonah angry. And he says, God, I knew you would do that. I knew you'd forgive them. I knew you're slow to anger. I knew what you were going to do. And I'm angry about it. Because fundamentally, he's angry because Jonah sees himself in a different category than the Ninevites. He says, look, when I mess up, I don't deserve judgment. But when they mess up, they do. You see, you know, look how evil they are. They don't deserve judgment. But I do, of course, and you're slow to anger. To me, that's great. You put me in a well, you were slow to anger, you helped me. But because I'm in a different category to them. They don't deserve mercy. But I do. And I gotta say, I kind of think I'm a bit like Jonah. I kind of think I look at Jonah, and this is the point of the book of Jonah. I see a bit of myself in Jonah. That the problem is always them. Right? The problem is never here. The problems in the world are always them. They deserve judgment. They are the problem. But when it comes to me, it's like, God, you know, I've got good reasons that I did that. You know, I got good reasons to. You don't know what's happened. And I start to excuse and I start to rationalize my behavior to get me off the hook. But them, crush him, God. I mean, crush him. Now, I know this every day of my life, that I'm Jonah, because I have the privilege of driving in Los Angeles, (laughs) right? So I'm driving, we live down in Marina del Rey, and I drive to work every day, this is where I work, and so I I drive along Ocean, and there's some pretty like, you know, two lanes, I'm weaving in and out in the sporty minivan that I own, and I'm like weaving in and out, it's pretty fast, it's pretty good, I can cope, and there's Delightful, actually. And then I get down into Santa Monica. Then I got a horrendous choice. Do I drive up street lights from hell on Wilshire and stop at all these stop- stops where these pedestrians get three years to cross the road? <laughs> and I'm waiting and waiting for someone just to have a chat in the middle of this intersection. Or do I go a couple more blocks and drive up the road of red devils called these stop signs. 
It's just like stop sign after stop sign after stop sign. I go, oh, I can't do street lights from hell, so I'll do the stop sign. So I get up on California, and I'm driving up. You know, and I, it's just, here I am, praising the Lord in my car. <laughs> I roll to a stop with a stop sign. And who do you know it? Someone arrives after me, but they just go straight out, lift up their hand or on the phone as if they're too busy to stop. And I go, oh, Lord, bless them. <laughs> but crush them. <laughs> then the next stop sign, someone else cuts me up. Someone else goes before me when they should have come after me. Don't you know the rules? The clockwise rule. But no, LA drivers. And before I get, just I get up to 10th Street and I'm there going, Lord, judge this city. <laughs> Crush them with your mighty vengeance. Uphold the righteous and the rule followers. Lord, preach against them. But then, of course, the end of the day comes. It's Tuesday, so I'm, I get in early, and I'm there late because I'm doing Alpha, and I'm tired, and it's about 10.15 or 10.30. You know, it's been a big day. You know, I've been pouring out my, my heart and soul to people all day. I've been maybe speaking on Alpha, great conversations with people on Alpha. I've been doing the Lord's business. And so I get in the car and go, oh, just need to get home. So I, I start to drive down California, and I see these optional red signs appear before me. <laughs> And I see the cards are there beforehand, but they don't know how tired I am doing the Lord's work. And so I just kind of roll on through and say, thank you. So they look at me bemused. And, and by, before I know it, I'm kind of rolling through these red stop signs all the way thinking, but Lord, I just need to get home. I'm so tired. You know, Chick-fil-A closes in two minutes. I need to, I need to get through there. And I, and I remember just this last week, I remember rolling through and just kind of excusing myself and someone gave me the flip with the bird. I went, Lord, how rude! Don't they know I've been doing the Lord's business? And I should priority right now to get home. Lord, judge them. But don't judge me. Lord, judge them. But it's never my fault. Lord, there's evil in the world, but it's never me. Lord, there's greed and there's abuse, the selfishness, which reap all the consequences that we see in the world, all the micro decisions that everyone's making that you see, and it's all conspiring to be this global darkness that we see. It's them, Lord. It's, it's never me. You see, we all have reasons. We all have excuses. We all expect people to see our heart but never our behavior. I and mean, then we have blind spots, right? Even in our best moments, we go, it isn't me. Forgetting that we are blind to our own brokenness. I mean, I, I, <laughs> it's easy to prove that we're blind to our own brokenness. Because I can guarantee you look at your younger self and think, oh my word, I thought I knew it all back then. I was reading on uh, Twitter this week. I saw this... Someone posted this. They said, if you can't look back at your younger self and realize that you were an idiot, you're probably still an idiot. <laughs> you know, that's my experience. I look at Gare 30 years ago, oh my word, I had so much to learn. I thought I was making the right decisions. I thought I was doing good things. And now I go, oh my word, I'm so glad I'm not there anymore. 
And guess what I'm going to think when I'm 20 years older? I'm going to look at the 49 version of Gare and go, oh my word, he thought he had it all together. He thought he knew it all. He thought he could judge fairly. See, we do this individually. We kind of sanitize our current sense of who we are and blame the past, but don't realize that someone's, you are going to blame you because you'll have blind spots. Culturally, we have blind spots. That's why we have cancel culture. We look back at culture 20, 30 years ago and go, oh my word, I can't believe we used to laugh at that. I can't believe we allowed that. And rightly so, we go, no more. The problem is, if we look at it from a position of superiority, we forget that in 30 years, culture will look at us now and go, I can't believe you used to do that. I can't believe you used to laugh at that. You see, we have blind spots to our own brokenness now. It's what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We're okay now, but we're never okay. We are all part of the problem. Yes, of course, some behavior and some sins are more grievous than others. It's ridiculous. Jesus never says all sins are the same. But we're all sinful. And we are all part of the problem. So the dilemma comes is if we want a God who's going to come against the evil in the world, we're inviting that God to come against us. And so we kind of go, actually, I want a God of judgment, but I don't want a God of judgment. So the question is, can we trust God in his judgment? Is there any type of good news in his judgment against evil in the world when we are in the firing line? And justifiably so. This is what the book of Jonah is all about. Because we see the good news of God's loving judgment. A judgment that we can trust. A judgment that we can believe in. A judgment that we can desire even when it's pointed towards us. Because we see that in Jonah, God judges rightly. He comes, calls time on evil. He's unchanging. He's not going to overlook it. We do want someone to judge evil. But he, just, he judges also fairly. I love the fact that he doesn't trust Jonah to judge. He says to Jonah, give them the message I'm going to give you. Because God knows that we don't ever have the full clarity to judge fairly. I'm sure if he said to Jonah, go give the Assyrians a piece of your own mind, he would have a lot to say. But it wouldn't be God's righteous judgment. It would come out of a place of bitterness, a place of revenge, a place of not even knowing the full story. See, we never know the full story. We never know the background. Even our moral compass of what right is wrong seems to change every 20, 30 years. We are the worst people to bring that judgment, which is why he says, I will 
give you the message. And we can trust that the God who revealed himself in Jesus, who is full of love and grace and mercy, will judge rightly because he sees everything. He has full 2020 vision into every situation. He knows the past. He knows what's happened in your life. He knows the stuff that's been perpetrated against you. He knows what you've done. He can sort it all out, and he's unchanging and not capricious. He's fair. And he convicts us without shaming us. You know, the difference between conviction and shame, right? Conviction is being realizing that my behavior is wrong. Shame is, no, I am wrong. And God brings conviction, never shame. And we even see that here in chapter 4. Because the very last verse of the book of Jonah is staggering. Because God says this to Jonah, who's upset. He says to Jonah, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Do you see how God seeks not to excuse their behavior and bring judgment, but he's not bringing judgment against them and smiting them and shaming them. He's calling a halt to their behavior but he sees beneath a people lost in darkness, lost in how to live rightly in the world. God judges fairly. He then judges lovingly. This is what actually angers Jonah the most. He says, God, I knew you'd be gracious and compassionate. And he's saying it with anger, right? You're slow to anger, abounding in love. A God who relents from calamity. But isn't that who we want to entrust our own life to? Ironically, Jonah is upset that God is showing this patient mercy and compassion to the Ninevites. And he's angry at that when actually he is also enjoying that from God. What he is desperate for is a God who's slow to anger and rich in love. A God who will never give up on you and will keep wooing you, wooing you, won't reject you, won't rule you out. After your hundredth failure at the same thing, he'll go, but I'm never giving up. I may even send a whale to bring him back. It's a God who judges lovingly. A God who judges restoratively. Look again at the book of Jonah. What's the goal of God's judgment here? Is it to smite them? Is it to crush them? Is it to wipe them out? But in verse 10, we see when the Ninevites repented, it says, God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, and he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened, he had warned. God's judgment is a good thing because in it, he's warning us to turn around so we don't destroy ourselves and destroy others. His judgment is there to bring us back, to bring us into his will, to bring us into his healing. 
He will not put up with the behavior, but he will warn you and he will threaten his anger to say, please don't do this. But the end result is because I want you back and I want you healed. And I want to give you a new life. And all, it's, all it took was that they turned around from their behavior. They turned and heeded the warning of God and he relented. I'm so glad that God's judgment towards me has never been with the purpose of my destruction, but my redemption. But most beautifully and most importantly, Jonah shows us that God's judgment is sacrificial. You see, the author of the book of Jonah, we don't know who wrote it, but the author of the book of Jonah focuses in, in verse 6, on the king of Nineveh. It says, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, which means to symbolize sin, to symbolize the brokenness, and he sat down in the dust to symbolize I'm taking on the consequences of what we've done. Here we have a king representing his people, taking on the sins of a nation and turning around and dealing with the consequences of their actions. But the problem is, of course, the king can do that and we can do that, but we'll be doing it every single day because we'll never stop messing up. We'll never stop bringing brokenness into the world. And is there any hope that this eventually will be dealt with for good? That this problem will be taken away? That we're not constantly realizing we are deserving of judgment? Well, the king of Nineveh is making us think of another king who will one day come. And this king is also the judge. And Jesus, as the judge, as king, the divine king, rightly we want him to bring judgment and tidy up the brokenness in this world. But he does that in a way that's unexpected and gloriously scandalous. Because here we have a king who brings justice. But he also gets up from his throne. He also takes off his royal robes. He also clothes himself in the sackcloth of humanity's brokenness. And he also goes down to the dust to die the death that we deserve. That we might not suffer what we do deserve. What Jonah shows us is that we have a God of judgment that we want. But we have a God of judgment we could never deserve who takes it upon himself, who goes to the cross, becomes sin instead of us that we might then turn around and receive his life and his eternal forgiveness we don't. 
It's why in John 3.16, we should always continue to verse 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Let's stand together. If you're new to Vintage, I want to just explain something to you, which so many people are new. Our services don't end now, sometimes like other churches, with a quick sing-song and we leave for donuts. Because this is not just hearing, but responding. And so we're going to have 20 minutes of worship every week, 20 minutes of worship as a time of response, as a time of encounter. We believe Jesus is here and through His Spirit touches us. And so we invite you into that response time now. Don't rush away, but respond to what God is doing. Worship Him. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you just be in His presence. It may be that you need to turn around and repent of these things that God is saying, I want you back. And we have, have you ever noticed, we have a little carpeted area down here. That's not because we ran out of wood. (laughs) It's because we often, like I do anyway, need an opportunity, somewhere to go and kneel somewhere to go and just show my, Lord, I surrender. I can't do it in my seat. I need to do something. And if you do, come up. We'll have the prayer team come up. They'll just literally for five seconds just pray over you and move on. They're not going to ask anything. But this is 20 minutes where we enjoy His presence. Be authentic who you are and how you want to respond, but don't rush away. But press in to responding to God. Press in to worshiping Him or repenting, whatever it is you want to do, because he's here. So Jesus, as we worship you now, you are the great king, the great judge who actually takes the judgment onto yourself. We could never express how much we love you and thank you. So come now, move amongst us, and meet with us, we pray. Amen.